Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Bible even says that in the last days, there's going to be a great falling away. There are going to be a lot of people that walk away from the faith in the last days. People who are not nominal in their faith. People haven't really made a commitment to Christ. And that's what this book is all about. Now let's go back to the supremacy of Christ for a moment. That This book's all about Jesus, and it wants to show you that Jesus is supreme over everything. The book of Hebrews is all about who Jesus is, His grandness, His majesty. There's a worship song I love to sing that proclaims Jesus over everything. He reigns forevermore. Hebrews 2 verse 8 declares, No matter how crazy this world gets, Jesus has authority over all. We kick off a study in Hebrews today on practical Christian living as Pastor Robert looks at the supremacy of Jesus. Father, we want to thank you for your word. It really is rich and deep and powerful. Even as it says here in Hebrews, it's, it's alive and it gets into our hearts. It gets deep down between our soul and our spirit where no one else can tell but your word can. And you do a work. And here we have this book that's been given to us for a reason. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus from beginning to end. It's about the superiority of Jesus. It's about him as our savior and that he is superior over everything. And, and the writer wants us to understand that there is no one else around us, nothing else around us that is as powerful or as, as important as Jesus Christ is. We can get distracted by things. We can get distracted by churches. We can start to attend a church and we can love our church. And I think we should love our church. I'm not saying that. But if our church, if we're so excited about the church we attend, more so than Jesus, and that happens, then there's a real problem with teachers. I, uh, I, knew, I met a lot of people that had Chuck Smith as their pastor. I would meet him. We, we, do a, we didn't do it last year because of COVID, but we do a pastor's conference here, pastors and leaders conference every year. And I would meet a lot of people and people would say, well, I go to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa over the years. They'd be real proud of the fact that they go to the church that Pastor Chuck teaches at. And I understand that. I got certain teachers that I went to a pastor's conference where Chuck uh, Swindoll was teaching. And afterwards, I went up to tell him how much he's met in my life. And I got all flustered talking to him. Like I see some of you guys get flustered with me. I was like, I just wanted to tell you, I'm really blessed by you. And, uh, and he was like, okay, thanks. Move along. <laughs> but I mean, I, I love Charles Swindoll's teaching. In fact, I, I, when people, I've had people tell me, I go to Charles Swindoll's church. And you always kind of want to go, well, la-di-da, you know. But I'll tell you what, I would go there. I'd resign and go there if I, if I you know, I would, probably wouldn't really do that. But if I could choose a church to go to, Charles Swindoll's would be the church that I'd choose to go to. I love David Jeremiah. I love Greg Laurie. There's all these guys that I love. But never should a teacher, a pastor, really even be put up on a pedestal. We should always understand who they are, be blessed by how we've received from them. It's great to receive from somebody. But listen to what Paul said to the church at Corinth because they were putting their pastors up on a pedestal even above Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13, he says, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. You guys are fighting among yourselves. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is appalled at the fact that anybody would put him up to Christ and that they would say, I'm of Paul. And then the person who says, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas, Cephas is Peter. Okay, we got that. But then we've got somebody saying, I'm of Christ. And he rebukes them as well. We say, well, that's the right way to be. I'm of Jesus. But they were doing it pridefully. See, it's, it's about our intent, right? It's about our motive. And so they were going, well, you're of Paul. Well, I'm of Jesus. And so they were doing it pridefully instead of doing it properly, which is knowing that Jesus is the one that our allegiance is to. He is our Savior and He is our God. And, and He is far grander than we even begin to understand. And a study in the book of Hebrews helps us to understand how grand He is. Now, we don't know who the author is. Um, some suggest Paul. Some suggest that Paul wrote it in Hebrew, in, in actual Hebrew language, because he's writing to Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people who have gotten saved, given their lives to Christ, are now under persecution, and are thinking or are going back into Judaism. So it's, it's a very Jewish, very Hebrew flavor. Maybe Paul wrote it in Hebrew and someone like Luke came along and wrote it over into Greek that we have the copies that we have or we have the, the Greek uh, manuscripts that we have today. We know it was a very early book. We know it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 66. Sacrifices were still taking place when this book was written. We know that it was accepted by the early church as canon very early on. They believed it was written by someone that had authority. They, they knew who it was. I guarantee you that if we learned, if we could say this is the person that wrote it, you would go, I knew it. It's somebody you know. It's not like we would go, who? 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 There's such authority in this letter. He talks about the apostles. He knows them. He knows the law very well. Some have suggested Barnabas. Some have suggested Apollos. Some have suggested Aquila and Priscilla being involved in it. It's probably someone that we know who wrote this book. And I told you why it's written to the Hebrews, because they were some Jewish Christians, and that doesn't mean that there couldn't be any Gentiles involved in it, because there were Gentiles who had become Jewish, and some Jewish Christians, Christians who were Jewish, were going back into Judaism, because they were under persecution. The reason was, is that Judaism was a sanctioned religion by Rome, and Christianity was not, which meant that if you were in a city and you were being persecuted because you were Jewish, you had recourse under the Roman government to not be persecuted. But if you were Christian, it was not sanctioned, and we know that they were persecuted. And we know that during this time period, Rome was persecuting the church. We understand Nero's about to come on the scene where Nero's really gonna persecute the church, but we know that Christians were persecuted before the time of Nero, and so they were walking in their, their Jewish roots, fine, living their lives in the Roman Empire, becoming Christians, and all of a sudden finding themselves under a deeper persecution and thinking, why don't I just go back to Judaism? In fact, why don't I just go back to Judaism and I'll keep Jesus too? I'll have Jesus and Judaism both alongside each other. And we'll see as this letter unfolds, the author saying to them, why would you do that? Why would you go back to a high priest who's going to die and have to be replaced when you have a high priest already that has lived forever? And he's going to talk about the grandness of Jesus that they are actually leaving. It's very, for, for where we're at right now, it's very contemporary because a lot of people are reconstructing their faith under what is called progressive Christianity. 
I always like to kind of take the temperature of the audience. How many of you guys have heard of progressive Christianity? Just, all right, so, so a few of you guys have. So progressive Christianity is a step back into liberal Christianity. And when I use the word progressive and I use the word liberal, I'm not talking politically, right? Although there are politically progressive Christians who are now embracing progressive Christianity because it's an easy fit for them. To be a progressive Christian means you don't believe the Bible really is the word of God. You don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. You don't believe he was really born of a virgin. You don't believe he can really heal. You, you, you are a Christian because what else are you going to be? And you got a community. And so you go to church, but you're a progressive Christian. And there's a lot of pastors who are deconstructing their faith. There's a lot of worship leaders and songwriters who are deconstructing their faith. They're coming to a place where they don't believe any of these things. There's a lot of, uh, as I, I said, uh, people who write songs, uh, people who write books, a lot of books that maybe you and I have, have bought and read. They aren't, don't really believe the things that they're writing there. And progressive Christianity is this huge thing, especially when you get into the larger cities and churches. There are progressive churches that are growing right now. But just like back in the early 20s, when liberal churches became popular, and liberal churches were much of the same thing as progressive Christianity is today. They, they taught that there were, there were no miracles. They could all be explained away. Their evolution was true. God didn't really create the world. They taught those things. So what happens, let's just say you're progressive. I know you're not, but let's just say you are. You say, I'm a progressive Christian. I don't really believe any of this stuff. So then you come to church and you hear me, and I'm a progressive teacher. This is a progressive church. It's not, but just for the sake of my analogy. And you hear me say, well, the Bible isn't true. God didn't create the world. Evolution is true. We have a community here, but, but you know, you don't, there's no power. God can't heal. God can't answer your prayers. Okay, it might be good for you to meditate, but God can't answer your prayers. How long is it going to be until you wake up on Sunday morning and go, why, why am I going to go to church? God's not real. It's not true. He can't do anything. Doesn't help me out any. I'm going to stay in bed. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have an extra half hour of sleep. I'm going to sit out on my back porch and have a cup of coffee. Because I might as well, because God's not real anyway. And so the liberal churches died because they were teaching that. They taught it. All the liberal churches just dwindled in numbers. And the churches that taught that Jesus heals, that Jesus rose from the dead, they, they grew. Because that's the truth about the power of who God is. And so today, while people are deconstructing their faith, and, and by the way, for, for the pastors who, there are some pastors who don't believe anymore. They just don't believe. And they're continuing to pastor because what else are they going to do? Of course, that's what they say. What else, are, what else am I going to do? Well, you're going to have some character for one thing and not continue to teach what you don't believe because what power is there in that? And what hypocrisy is there in that? I, I listened to a pastor who was a Calvary Chapel pastor and he had become a Presbyterian pastor and now he's Catholic. But when he was Presbyterian pastor, he, did, he decided I don't believe this anymore. And he, he left. He left a good salary in a, church, a good church where people loved him, and I respect that. I, I wish I could talk to him, you know, talk to him about his decisions that he made, but he's secure in his decisions, but he did what was right. There are some people who are writing books who won't do that. There's some people writing worship music. We're singing, and they're not committed to Christ because they've deconstructed their faith. And I just say, hey, at least be honest, right? At least be honest about it. Be, be open about it. You know, go, do, go do something else. There's plenty of other jobs out there. Go do something else. You're talented if you're a writer. You're talented if you're doing music. So go do something else. How, how's that? 
How fun is this, huh? All right, so it is very prevalent. It's very, it's very, it's very um, applicable to us today because of how prevalent it is. The Bible even says that in the last days, there's going to be a great falling away. There are going to be a lot of people that walk away from the faith in the last days. People who are not nominal in their faith. People haven't really made a commitment to Christ. And that's what this book is all about. Now, let's go back to the supremacy of Christ for a moment, that, that this book's all about Jesus, and it wants to show you that Jesus is supreme over everything. So in the first two chapters... He dedicates that to showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. The Mormon church says that Jesus, I think it's the Mormon church that says that Jesus is, is Michael the archangel. This tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels. The um, other cults will put angels on pedestals. Jesus is superior to all of the angels. And that's the first two chapters. Chapters three and four is dedicated to Jesus being superior over Moses and the law. A lot of people today are still going back to the law. They believe the law has power to be able to save them. There are some people who believe that Jews can be saved by the law and not by the name of Jesus. That is heretical, by the way, but there are some people who believe that. And to a Jewish person, Moses is the greatest prophet. And you can understand it as you think back to Moses delivering them from Egypt by the mighty hand of God, with them during the wanderings in the wilderness, bringing them up to the edge of the promised land. Right? Moses is the greatest. And it's, it's, he's like Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. I'm the prettiest there ever was. And uh, he takes through chapters three and four to say that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's writing to Jewish people. And, and in chapters five through seven, he speaks of the superior of Jesus over the high priest. That Jesus is the high priest that lives forever. And you've got a high priest that has to be replaced. And Jesus is a superior high priest in all the other aspects of the law. And finally, in chapters 7 through 10, really, uh, because the first 10 chapters of Hebrews are instruction, the last three chapters of Hebrews are encouragement. Okay, so there's a division there. So in verses 7 through 10, he talks about the superiority of Jesus over the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is superior to the sacrifices that are being given, even as he's writing this in the temple that is going to be destroyed by the Romans. So that's your outline of the book of Hebrews. It's all about superior. Superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to the high priest, superior to the sacrifices. The book also has six warnings in it. And they are severe warnings. And I want to read each of those warnings in our study tonight before we get into the first four verses. And the reason that I want to do this is because there are people who say that these warnings don't matter. They say any warning that you read in Scripture doesn't matter to Christians because once you're saved, you're always saved. And I don't, I don't necessarily have a huge beef, by the way, with once saved, always saved. At some point, I'll talk about what I believe. I don't quite believe that, but I lean more towards that than I believe that, that someone who really and truly is following Christ can just fall away, can just walk away. I, I believe more, to lean more towards the once saved, always saved. Now, there, there, I believe that someone can indeed leave their salvation at a certain point. And we'll talk about that in the future, but that's not why... That's not part of the point I'm trying to bring up. Why I'm talking about it, I don't even know. Um, maybe just to let you know that I'm not completely against the once saved, always saved idea. But there's no one who says, not including once saved, always saved, that if you walk away from Christ, if you deconstruct your faith, there's no one who says you're saved. Not any once saved, always saved person is going to say you're saved. They're going to say the fact that you left the church is evidence that you were never saved. Now, the person who believes that you can leave your salvation isn't going to say that. 
They're going to say that you were a genuine Christian and you made a decision to leave, to walk away from Christ, and you're not saved. The one saved, always saved, will say you were never saved. You thought you were saved. You look saved. In fact, there's a very well-known pastor, a well-known teacher, radio guy. You would know who he is. And I didn't mention him earlier, by the way. And he had an assistant pastor for 20 years that became an atheist and became a well-known atheist, wrote books about atheism. And he said, this guy who believes in once saved, always saved, said he was never saved. That he was at his church, that he was a pastor, that his minister alongside of him for 20 years and he was never saved when he left. That'll tell you, there's no one who says once saved, always saved. I was first introduced to this doctrine or, or there's no one who says that if you walk away, that you are still saved. When I was first introduced to this, I was a teenager, 16, 17 years old. One of the girls that hung out with us in church walked away. She started going out and partying and just doing drugs and all these things. And um, so I, I went to meet with her and just said, what are you, you, know, what are you doing? Come, you know, why, why, are you, why are you living this way? Come back. And she goes, don't worry about me. I grew up Baptist. And when I was a kid, I went up front over and over again. I've raised my hand. I've gone up front. I'm saved and I can't be lost. That was my first exposure to once saved, always saved. And even then I knew that's not right. I didn't know how to defend it. I didn't know how to speak against it. I was just like, what? You think because you went up front and raised your hand and then went up front that you now can't be lost? And if any of you are thinking that, I want you to know that even those that teach a once saved, always saved doctrine don't believe that. There's no one who would believe. My, my great example of this over the years has been someone who loves God, going to church, believes they're a Christian, and then they fall away and they become a devil worshiper. And because they're once saved, always saved, is God gonna have a devil worshiper in heaven? You go up, the guy's drawing up whatever, pentagram or whatever. What's going on? I'm a devil worshiper, but I was saved, so I'm here in heaven. Obviously, that's ridiculous, right? It would never happen. But that points out the ridiculousness of the argument that if you walk away, so you say, well, then where's my confidence? Our confidence is that we have a God who keeps us. We have a God who holds us. We have a God who is a shepherd who will go after us. That is our confidence. But you have to endure to the end. You have to take responsibility for enduring to the end to prove out your salvation. The evidence that you've really been saved is that you endure to the end. So all six of these warnings that we're going to cover are applicable. People read these warnings and go, well, they don't really mean, they say they're, they're, they're not, they are not really warnings, they say. Why are they there then? Every sign someone puts out on our road, there's a lot of signs, and sometimes you look at a sign and go, why is that sign there? Why is that one there? Somebody thought it needed to be there. But the person who thought these signs needed to be there is God, and they're there for a reason. So there's six warnings in the book of Hebrews, and these are heavy warnings, okay? And uh, we begin, I just wanna, I wanna read all these to you. I wanna, we're gonna put up the scriptures on the screen. We're gonna read all of them to you. The first warning is a warning against drifting. You know God, but you get sidetracked you drift away from him. It says in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, that's the law he's talking about, the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first be, began to be spoken by the Lord. It was Jesus who first brought the salvation and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So he's talking about the apostles now. 
God also bearing witness both with signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts. So here we have in the first century a mention of all the miracles that Jesus did, which were common knowledge, which is an evidence that Jesus actually did do miracles. And then it says, and the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The Holy Spirit also brought this. So if you drift away and you neglect this because you drift away, then how do you think nothing's going to happen? If with angels brought the law, they, there was a just reward with it. The second warning, the first one was drifting. The second warning is in departing. And that's in Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Brother, uh, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He not only says that there is this warning that you could depart from the living God, but he says for you and me to exhort one another daily that we would not leave or depart from the living God. And then it goes on to say, we have become partakers of Christ. Again, it's Jesus here. We've become partakers of the Messiah, of Christ, if we hold the beginning of the confidence steadfast to the end. Now, look at that whole line again. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And here you're getting the flavor of the book of Hebrews. The rebellion is the rebellion of the children of Israel when they rebelled against God. And, and, and all these warnings, in between all these warnings, he's talking about Israel and what Israel did and how God responded to them under the law and how you should not have a rebellious heart like they did. The third is the warning against disobedience. So drifting, denying, and now disobedience. That is hearing what God has to say and then not obeying it. Just having a heart, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's not talking about someone who sinned or, or, or who um, made a decision and then sinned, but it's someone in deliberate disobedience away from God. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In this, he gives examples of the children of Israel being disobedient to God, getting the clear direction from God and then making a decision to be directly disobedient to God. It's not a passing disobedience that was repented from. It's a deliberate disobedience that they decided to live in and they were punished for that. And then it says that you've got this disobedience going on for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of him who we must give an account. Now, you know that passage, and I quote that passage a lot, but did you know it was in the middle of a warning where God was saying, don't you be disobedient like they were disobedient because God's word is alive and it gets right down in your thoughts and heart. You can't hide from God. God knows every bit of your disobedience. The fourth warning is a warning of a dullness of heart. A dullness of heart can be acquired when we just serve in God and we're not really that diligent about it and we're just going through the motions and doing what we do that we can become dull. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. 
If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life, or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.